Hi, everyone, and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 17 of the 2018-2019 curling season. This week, we have an abbreviated episode of the podcast as we've been dealing with an unexpected computer meltdown at the From the Hack International Headquarters in Foliette, Ontario. I dare you to find that on a map. However, we do have a very interesting interview with Mark Kennedy following his win at the Canada Cup as a member of Team Jacobs. And we also speak with Coach Phil Drobnik of USA Curling about the second leg of the Curling World Cup that took place last weekend in Omaha, Nebraska. All that and more this week, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams at the World Championships and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedi's, whose in-ice graphics from easy and textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's Full House product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. Jedi's. They bring ice to life. Arnold Asham's passion for curling, along with his natural propensity to explore new ways to better the game, led him to a whole new world of product design. As a result, all Asham Curling Supplies products are designed with the curler in mind. Asham's patented ultralight RDS technology makes it possible to change and customize their slider with any combination of sliding discs. With equal resistance on all sides, the circular design that guarantees a straight slide. These circles have also been designed larger and with stabilizing bars from the outer unit sole to produce the most stable straight sliding shoe the world has ever seen. Go to www.asham.com for brooms, apparel, and revolutionary designed footwear. And if you're considering buying new curling shoes, you must consider the rotator sole. It's the sole of the future. From the Hacks recap of week 17 of the 2018-2019 curling season is powered by The Curling Zone, your premier source for curling results from around the world. Visit us at www.curlingzone.com. The biggest event on the curling calendar on week 17 was the Canada Cup in Estevan, Saskatchewan. The women's event was won by Team Jennifer Jones, who defeated Team Anderson 8-5 in the final, while the men's event was won by Team Jacobs, who defeated Team Cooey 5-4 in the final. Both finals were highly competitive games that included a turning point moment. In the women's game, it was a raised double takeout for three by Jennifer Jones in the ninth end, which gave her team an 8-5 lead that held up as the final score. The key moment in the men's game came in the fifth end, when an on-ice official mistakenly told Team Cooey that they had run out of time. Curling Canada has since admitted that a mistake was made in that situation. Thankfully, this year's Canada Cup did not include a direct spot into the Olympic trials, as it will next season, which would have made the error in the men's final much more critical than it was in the grand scheme of things. Mark Kennedy, who played third for Team Jacobs at the Canada Cup, joined from the hack to discuss the victory by Team Jacobs, and also to discuss the situation in the fifth end of the men's final, which included Mark and Ben Hebert, longtime teammates and friends, exchanging words. So, Mark, I need to start with the question that many Canadian curling fans had on their minds following the men's final at the Canada Cup, and that is whether or not you and Ben Hebert hugged it out after the game following the exchange you had in the fifth end. 
no, no, we didn't. We will eventually, I'm sure. It uh, usually takes a few days for both of us to come off of the competitive high. But um, yeah, no, it was a you know the incident was unfortunate, and, and I completely understand where they're coming from. You know, there was even confusion on our end. So it, it just you know there was nothing we could do about it, and it had very little to do with our team. Um, you know, but. It was, uh, yeah, it's a big game, intense moments, and sometimes that stuff happens. So I'm sure there'll be a day that comes around where him and I hug it out again. I know that you'd been keeping in shape and throwing rocks this season, but what were your expectations for yourself heading into the Canada Cup where you stepped in to play third for Team Jacobs? Well, I, I wanted to be ready to play at the level that I've kind of uh, expected of myself. You know, that, that high 80s type of number is what I felt like I would be ready to play at and uh, by the time I got tested on I felt like I was going to be close the tougher part was just getting into game speed so you know calling line getting used to weight you know not having played a lot of five rock rule it was those things that I was a little bit more concerned about catching on to uh, especially with our first two games being Kui and and Gushu you know I didn't have a lot of time to get my feet wet and if you lose those first two games you're, you're probably in some trouble so um but throwing-wise, I was ready to go and felt good. And, you know, Brad and I had talked about how well they'd been playing. And, uh, you know, the thought was, let's go out and win this thing. You know, let's let's mesh quickly, and here's our game plan. And, you know, here's what uh, he's looking for from me. And so let's just go and play our best and see what happens. And right away, it felt pretty good. So, you know, I think the expectations were to have some fun and, uh, yeah, and hopefully get into the playoffs and see if we could do some damage. Now, you're recognized throughout the curling community as a type of player that can fit into just about any team because you communicate well, you seem to read people well on the ice, and you seem to get a quick read of what the other players need on the ice from you in any given situation. That being said, team dynamics can be a tricky thing. Were you surprised at how quickly you seemed to gel with Team Jacobs, and did it come naturally, or did you and the team have conversations prior to the event to help facilitate that process? Yeah, I think uh, I, we did do a little bit of work before. Um, just, you know, I, I'm aware of how important that chemistry is and how important that dynamic is to win. And I wanted to make sure that I was coming in um, feeling pretty comfortable with the guys before we even stepped on the ice. So, you know, I'd had a, quite a few conversations with Brad uh, about curling and game planning and, you know, what to expect from each other. But I also had some good talks with Ryan and EJ about how things were going to go down at the other end of the ice just sweeping and what they wanted from communication and technique and so once you kind of get those things out of the way I realized quickly how much we are alike you know we we think of the game very similar um, you know but even just in our lives you know we all have young kids we all are in similar places with our families and careers so there's a lot in common right off the start and uh, and then when you when you kind of mesh our two sets of experiences and philosophies and what we've all been through in curling um, and you're open and receptive to some new things, it things mesh pretty easily. So it, it came very naturally, Frank. It, it really did. And I think I was in a position where I wanted to really play well for them and, and impress them and bring to the table what you know they expect from a guy like me. And uh, I think they were in the same position. They wanted to uh, impress me and, and play their best to show what they've got. So it was kind of that, uh, the perfect storm of, of four guys really trying their hardest for one another. And uh, it meshed great. Uh, I, I'm not that surprised that it went that way, um, but you're, you're never sure. You know, you're, you're hoping for the best, but uh, 
you know, you're expecting the worst, and uh, thankfully we got the best. Now, Mark, from the outside looking in, it certainly seems like Team Jacobs may have recovered some of the swagger they had back in 2013 and 2014 when they were winning the Briar in Olympic gold. You were right in the middle of it at the Canada Cup. Did you get the sense that some of that Team Jacobs swagger is back? Because it certainly seemed to have disappeared for a spell there. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I think they've had it pretty much all season. Uh, just from listening to them talk and how well they've played all year, uh, and they've put themselves in some good positions to win. Uh, and I think the addition of Adam Kingsbury has added a lot of confidence to that team. He's got them going in a, a good direction mentally. Uh, you know, they're putting a little bit more focus into the, the thought uh, rather than just, the you know, being in the gym and throwing lots of rocks. There's more to this game than that. And, and they are, uh, yeah, they're, they're feeling it pretty good right now. They've got a good swagger. They've got some confidence. They feel like they can win everything. And uh, sometimes that's half the battle is just believing that you can. So they're getting that intensity back and, uh, you know, I was really impressed with just Brad's overall confidence right now. You know, he knows what it's going to take to win, and, and they still have that hunger to be the best and to to win Briars and get back to the Olympics. So, um, yeah, look out for those guys. It's a good team. And now, you played with Kevin Cooey during the last Olympic cycle, obviously, having gone to the Olympics uh, on that team with uh, Kevin. Does that give you an advantage when you play him in events now in that you may have a really good idea of his tendencies and how he might approach different situations during games? It wasn't something that, um, you know, it, it wasn't like I'm, I've got a whole bunch of secrets on what those guys like to do in certain situations. I think some of those skips have played each other so many times um, that they know what to expect from each other. Uh, Brad and I did have a couple of conversations about what to expect from them in the final, and we both agreed that expect an aggressive Kevin. You know, Kevin doesn't like to sit back. He wants to go after it and get lots of rocks in play and, and try to make a big shot, um, especially starting the game without the hammer for them. You knew that Kevin was going to push the envelope. So it was actually Brad that had brought up trying a few different things and, and not being overly predictable. Um, and he did, and, and he did a few things that uh, may have caught them off guard. I don't know, but uh, but I like seeing it. I, I think to be a top-level team these days, you have to have all types of different games, so you're not overly predictable. Uh, and I think that's an evolution for the Jacobs team is to continue to try to shake things up. Uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I know what shots Kevin really likes to throw, but I, I don't feel in that game in particular that we did anything different to force Kevin into a certain turn or a certain shot. Um, I think our focus really was just on, you know, the four of us and executing and uh, letting Brad be as decisive as possible and just see how the cards play out. And finally, Mark, the big subject of conversation at the Canada Cup ended up being the thinking time per end that Curling Canada was field testing in Estevan. I've exchanged texts and emails with players that were on 11 of the 15 teams that played in Estevan, and only one team seemed to like the thinking time per end. Do you believe that these initial opinions may have been because it's a relatively new approach to thinking time and that most curlers tend to be creatures of habit and routine, or do you believe that there were some fundamental problems that Curling Canada may have to address if thinking time per end is ever to work at the elite level with so much at stake in an event operated by Curling Canada? I agree with most of the players that it needs to be tweaked a little bit. Um, I, I, I do think they're onto something when it comes to time per end. You know, I, I like it. Uh, I, I like the rhythm. I like the flow. I like that you, you, know, you can't bank time. And that, that time itself doesn't become a bigger issue later in the game. It's just the same every end. And with the five rock rule, you're almost playing ten mini games. And I like that. What I didn't like was, you know, how confusing it was with the shot clock and the 30 seconds, and it, 
it, it started the week with 20 seconds, and there was nowhere to see your time out. You know, you didn't know how much time you had left. So it was just way too confusing, especially when you're in those high tense moments. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that the final basically came down to a confusing time clock moment that was is completely avoidable and unnecessary if you just have, you know, here's your amount per end, here's what you have for timeouts, just deal with it. And, you know, from our perspective, you know, we managed it really well. You know, Brad did a great job. We never really got in time trouble all week. We were always aware of what we had for timeouts, you know, but for some of those teams, you know, like Kevin's team that's always had troubles with time, it's, uh, it's a bigger challenge. So I'm, I, I like, I think they're on the right track, but it definitely needs more tinkering and probably needs a little bit more input from the players um, to get it right, in my opinion. If you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline Curling. For those who play with the ice pad, they know it's the best curling brush. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist Team Schuster, or women's Olympic gold medalist Sweden's Team Hasselberg, and their countrymen Team Adine, or how about the top Canadian teams, Team Gushu, Kevin Cooey, Brad Jacobs, Team Carruthers, Kerry Anderson, and Chelsea Carey. The list is endless. And Hardline is not just curling brooms. They offer a full range of curling equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel, and the Pro Slide Delivery Aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit their website at www.hardlinecurling.com and see why the top teams in the world choose Hardline for their equipment needs. Before we move on to our final guest of the week, I wanted to remind you that From the Hack is part of the Curling Podcast Network, along with the Two Girls in the Game podcast and the Curling Legends podcast. If you haven't subscribed to those two podcasts yet, you should really check them out. The second leg of the Curling World Cup took place this week in Omaha, Nebraska. The men's event came down to a rematch of the Olympic final with Team Schuster defeating Team Adine of Sweden by a score of 3-1. The women's final was an all-Asian matchup with Team Fujisawa of Japan defeating Team Gim of Korea 7-6. In mixed doubles, it was a matchup of the silver and bronze medalists from the Olympics in Pyeongchang as the Norwegian team of Skazlin and Niedergotten defeated the reigning world champions Perret and Rios of Switzerland by a score of 10-5. From the Hack caught up with Coach Phil Drobnik of USA Curling to discuss the Curling World Cup and talk about the U.S. teams and their performances at the event in Omaha. Coach Phil, the biggest story coming out of the second leg of the Curling World Cup was the Olympic final rematch between Team Schuster and Team Adin in the men's final. Can you tell me a little bit more about the final, which seemed to be a low-scoring affair despite the five-rock rule? Yeah, I think that, um, uh, you know, Nicholas uh, obviously has been... Uh, you know, struggling a little bit with John as of late, and um, I think uh, approached this with maybe a, a little different strategy than than he normally would have, and uh, tried to uh, you know he had the hammer in the first end, and um, in an eight end game which uh, gives him the advantage to start the game, and uh, you know got the blank which even gives him a big bigger percentage by numbers uh, opportunity to win. So I think he was trying to keep. Uh, to keep it uh, to a defensive game and ended up uh, giving up a, a steal early on and and we kind of flipped the hammer on him um, after four ends we were up one to nothing and uh, he had his opportunity in the uh, fifth to uh, to get a big end to get two or three and uh, didn't end up uh, um, getting what he wanted out of his first and ended up being forced to one. And uh, and then from there, uh, there, there just wasn't a whole lot of offense in the game. Um, and, and John was fine with the fact that there wasn't because, you know, we were in control of the scoreboard. 
So it was uh, it was an interesting game. It was one that we typically don't see those two teams play, a style of game that we don't see those two teams play when they play each other. It has obviously been a very busy season so far for Team Schuster, especially off the ice, as they've been invited to numerous different functions and special events to celebrate their gold medal victory at the Olympics. The one negative to that is that their on-ice results this season have been somewhat mediocre. How important was the victory in Omaha for Team Schuster, not only because they were playing in front of an American audience, but also because it might give them some additional on-ice confidence as they enter the second half of the season? Yeah, we set that weekend up uh, in the beginning of the year as the goal um, for coming out and winning that weekend, uh, you know, we knew that was probably our most important uh, event that we we'll, that we would play in, in in the season. Obviously, there's slams and there's other things going on, but this year our focus was that World Cup, and we wanted to win that one in the first half of the season. Um, the guys were, you're right, they were trapped. They've been pulled in every which direction. We've had to back out of a slam or two this season because of various things that were going on. Um, not something the guys really wanted to do, but just uh, with this year being this year, it, it ended up happening that way. So, um, you know, they've. Uh, I, I think the the fact that they were able to to set that goal and and come into that event, um, played a sloppy first game against China, and we were not very good um, in that game. And to be able to just flip the switch and say, okay, it's time. Um, we need. To, I, I know we're all a little exhausted we're all a little tired the first half of the season was was tough but um let's let's leave it out on the ice every time we play and uh and to run six off straight was uh was impressive i was really really happy with the way they played the high percentage numbers that they were throwing throughout the week so um it was definitely a statement win for them um and and, and especially with the way it you know finished having to play nicholas in the final in the women's final, it was Team Fujisawa of Japan defeating Team Gim of Korea 7-6. Now, Team Fujisawa is a known quantity in that they are among the top-ranked teams in the world, but the performance by the Koreans was a bit more of a surprise. Did you get the sense that this was a simple case of a team having a good week, or do you think they may be on the verge of making their way up the world rankings? I think they had a really good week. They, um, I watched them the first game and uh, when they played Jamie in the first game, and they weren't uh, as sharp as uh, as they were at the end of the week they they continued to get better every time they got on the ice and uh so you know i watched the second time they played jamie and uh they they were all of a sudden getting the broom in the right spot um putting rocks in the right spot and 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 putting pressure on on other teams same thing when they when they played against uh tracy so um yeah, they, they definitely, I think, surprised teams, caught teams off guard, especially um, with, the, uh, you know, they had lost their first game of the, the round robin as well. So um, they, they got better. They, they, they really made a lot of draws and, and, and got, got rocks in positions to win. Um, you know, unfortunately for them, they ended up playing really good in that final game and, and gave themselves that draw to win the game. And, and uh, um, you know, the, the just, just came a little heavy, which is pretty common for, for new teams to that situation and uh, having to deal with pressure. It was, uh, you know, something that we see a lot, I guess. And, um, you know, I, I, the one thing I will say is uh, I, I did, on the other hand, watch a lot of uh, or did catch a, a number of games from the from the Japanese team, and, and they were playing really well. Um, they were making tons of shots in the round robin. You know, they had a tough pool, and to come out of that pool with, with Eve and, and Anna Hasselberg in that pool and to come out of it, that was uh, – they had an impressive week there and, and uh, really probably a, a pretty good statement for the Japanese ladies team.
I had Jamie Sinclair as a guest on the podcast last week, and it's pretty clear that she didn't anticipate that this would be a rebuilding year for the team after the season they had last season, where they finished fourth at the Worlds and won the Players' Championship. That being said, how do you see their progression so far this season as a new lineup with Vicky Persinger moving on to another team, and now with Alex Carlson taking some time away because she's expecting? Yeah, they are, um, you know, they've had a lot of ups and downs this season, in particular, you know, um, starting the season off, not having the same lineup for the first five, six events. Now they've finally got got a lineup that they, they got set in stone. Um, she's starting to develop that relationship with uh, with Sarah Anderson as third and uh, and Taylor Anderson. Um, it's It's been a learning curve for, for them. And, uh, you know, Sarah and Taylor hadn't, hadn't played in a lot of slams and they hadn't, played at that high level um you know obviously sarah did in mixed doubles she's she's played you know world championships and world cups and all those those great things and 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 they're both great players but um it's just a different different uh, set when you're up playing against top 10 teams every week you know week in and week out and uh they're learning a lot as a team they they realize that uh you know what the end goal for this season is is to get to the world championships and and to win a medal there so um yeah, frustrating that they're they're not uh, getting the results they want. But um, you know, she uh, had had a good chat with them at the end of the weekend, and and they're really looking forward to um, the rest of the season, and looking forward to to uh, Jamie in particular building, continue to build that relationship with Taylor and Sarah and uh, Anderson, and 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 making sure that they can become um, the team that they want to become. So um, I I think it'll it'll take probably some time and uh, it may take till they get to the nationals and to get to the spot where they want to be but you know I'm, I'm confident that when they get to those nationals that they'll be ready to go and um, you know and, and come out in the second half of the season and, and, and perform. And finally, Coach Phil, I'm not sure how much of the news from the Canada Cup made its way to the World Cup in Omaha last week, but the big news out of Estevan was the field test that Curling Canada did with Thinking Time Per End, which did not go very smoothly and was disliked by 10 of the 11 teams I was able to communicate with both during and after the Canada Cup. You've seen the rule in place at the two Curling World Cup events this season so far. What are your thoughts on Thinking Time Per End, and do you think it's the wave of the future? You know, I... I've yeah, I've had the opportunity to be a part of it in the in the World Cups at both events, and and um, you know I've I've felt like it ran pretty smoothly at the World Cups. I think they've probably had uh, a total of maybe four teams run at a time there, and most of them were mixed doubles teams. Um, but uh, you know it's uh, it's it's different, and it's um, it's it's definitely faster paced to play. Um, you know, I think we need to get to, to move the game to be more fast-paced. I think some teams spend a lot of time um, and too much time talking out there. And, you know, as we know, that's that's not maybe necessarily particularly good for TV if it's just tons of downtime and having them, you know, studying shots um, over and over. It's uh, almost like uh, baseball where, t- you know, people are starting to, to stray away from baseball because the game is too long or too slow. So um, I think it, de- it does help with that. Um, you know, you definitely find out which teams are slow out on the tour and which teams are slow in general in playing when you, when you, uh, when you watch uh, when they're getting time per end. So um, I, I think that uh, my prediction is that they're going to end up going in that way. Um, now, 
I, I, I gave my feedback to the WCF and I said that I, I think it's uh, I, I think it's a positive thing. I'd like to see the system that they they had up in Canada where they had a, a couple 30 second uh, extensions on skip rocks or you know maybe a couple 60 second timeouts just to there's that one critical moment in the game where you want to stop the clock. They don't have that in the World Cups, but they they had it up in the Canada Cup. I don't know. I didn't watch a lot of the Canada Cup, but I I got some feedback on on that those seemed to work out well. I didn't see it in particular. I had heard that that Team Cooley was struggling with the with the time clock, but um, I don't know if there were a lot of other teams that were struggling with it. But um, you know, I think it's it, it, it like anything. It's it's something new. And it's challenging when something's new, but um, you know if there's anything that we can do to help speed our game up and to help make our game more uh, sellable uh, to the to the general public and bring in new viewers, right? You know, our we when we have our our, our, our we're going to have our traditional viewers. We're never going to lose. You know, those those people are going to watch no matter what. It's all about drawing in the new viewers. And when we're drawing in new viewers, especially on the state side, we're drawing in people that are now. Um, potential new members and new new curlers, which is what we're trying to always do down here in growing the game. And that does it for the From the Hack podcast for week 17 of the 2018-2019 curling season. A big thank you to Mark Kennedy and Phil Drobnik for joining us, and also to you for listening. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.